The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Want to escape the realities of life? Well, the world offers plenty of options to cloud your mind with alcohol, drugs, sedatives, and opiates, with new chemistry being developed all the time. Now, if you don't want to escape from your world, the Bible has an answer, but it also asks a profound question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. One of my favorite movies of all time, which really caught my imagination, is The Great Escape, a World War II epic film starring Steve McQueen, James Garner, and Richard Attenborough, based on a first-hand account of the mass escape by British Commonwealth prisoners of war from a German POW camp. The film was based on real events and real men. But it's a screen adaptation of the book by the same title, adapted to appeal to the American market. The prisoners organized into teams to plan a daring escape. Some of the men were the tunnel kings in charge of digging the escape tunnels. They worked on three possible escape tunnels simultaneously, calling them Tom, Dick, and Harry and the noise of the work was covered by a prisoner choir. One of the prisoners was nicknamed the scrounger because he scrounged up the needed materials, anything from a camera to clothes and identity cards. Another prisoner was labeled the manufacturer because he made the tools like picks for the digging and bellows to pump air into the tunnels. Another prisoner was the tailor who created civilian outfits from scavenged cloth. The forger made fake documents and passports for the escapees, and others devised a method of spreading the tunnel dirt over the camp right under the noses of the guards. I loved the resourcefulness of the escapees, and part of the film's appeal is that we all love the idea of being able to escape from difficult and unpleasant situations in life. People sometimes choose their various poisons in order to escape difficulties, whether it's drink or drugs, TV, food, or other indulgences, because life can be really hard. But I think especially hard for people who don't have God in their lives. You see, the presence and comfort of the Holy Spirit is priceless. Millions who don't have the strong anchor of the Lord in their lives are held in the clutches of escapism. And the epidemic of suicides is alarming. But if you decide to kill yourself, you will not really escape. You may kill your body, but you can't kill your soul. Your soul with all of its perplexities, tensions, problems, and sins will still continue to exist. It will still be able to think and to despair. So you won't escape if you commit suicide. You see, as a result of sin, this world is warped. Frustrations, fears, nervous tensions, and a thousand and one other problems have gripped millions because of the moral disease called sin. And by the way, 
There are no new sins, only new sinners. There are no new crimes under the sun, only new criminals. And there are no new evils, only new evildoers. The perversions going on today are the same old perversions of Sodom and Gomorrah, described in Genesis 18 and 19. Sin is taking a gigantic toll on our society. Society is escalating on the downslide, devastated by depravity, given over to lust, pride, self-indulgent. Basically, it's just rejection of God and His Messiah and the truth of Scripture in this manufacturer's handbook, the Bible. After so many years, thousands of years of so-called human progress, we're forced to admit that mankind really has not evolved into utopia. We're still capable of committing the same perversions and sins. But the Bible teaches that a time of unparalleled depravity is coming upon the earth. During what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, it'll be a time of great wrath and judgment. And if we have a lick of common sense, we'll want to avoid that time. You see, there are at least 300 prophecies in the Hebrew Bible that have been fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. In fact, the Old Testament in many places and in many ways describes details not yet fulfilled in his first coming, but that will be fulfilled in his second coming. And the precision with which the details of his first coming were fulfilled validates and certainly gives credibility to the prophecies concerning his second coming. The Son of Man will return in a cloud with power and great glory. His second coming will be very different from the first time he came in a manger in humility, but not the next time. He's coming again to fulfill all the prophecies about king and judge. Well, Hebrews 2.3 asks the pivotal question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation as that provided by the Savior Jesus? You see, the Bible speaks of two good escapes, a sanctified escape concerning eternal salvation, and the other escape concerns the pre-tribulation rapture. Jesus said an amazing thing in Luke 21, 36. He told us, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. He's warning the believer to pray to escape the great tribulation period. You see, in this world, we're guaranteed tribulation in general, adversity and troubles. But I personally don't believe, after studying this Word of God for many years, that the church, consisting of genuine born-again believers, will go through the end-time period referred to in the Bible as the Great Tribulation, the time of wrath, because that will be a unique, unprecedented short period in world history. And it will consist of upheavals, wrath, and judgment. And as the book of Revelation reveals, the church does not belong in the Great Tribulation. You can't find the church there in the book of Revelation. You see, concerning God's dealing with Israel, evangelical theologians describe the church as somewhat of a glorious parenthesis 
as the times of the Gentiles in between Israel's history. The church grew out of Judaism and started at Pentecost and it will soon be fully complete. The church age will end and then God will return to finish his program with the nation of Israel because he's a covenant keeping God with Israel. I know this flies in the face of the era of replacement theology, but nevertheless, the tenor of scripture makes a clear distinction between the church and the nation of Israel. The rapture will be an exclusive event for the true church. It is part of God's mystery. The apostle Paul revealed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, behold, I'm gonna show you a mystery. He said, not all of us will die, but all of us will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. So part of the whole mystery of the church will be the mysterious snatching away of the true church. I've spoken of this in other programs, and I want to warn you that there's a new deceptive trend in theological circles that says believing in the rapture is somehow anti-Semitic because we're going to escape the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, and leave the Jews behind. Thankfully, the great tribulation will be a short period in which the nation of Israel will be saved. And so it's useless to try to make true believers feel guilty for understanding the times and for recognizing the signs of the times. Now the Bible asks the most urgent question in life and it's in Hebrews 2, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? My husband and I went for a number of years throughout Asia sharing the gospel with this verse as our principal theme. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great wholesale salvation? It's such a great salvation because the gospel not only includes salvation from eternal perdition, but it includes healing for our bodies in this life and deliverance from the dominion of sin. God has made such a great salvation possible for all of us, but it must be received. The Bible promises us perfect peace through this salvation, even in the midst of chaos, because our minds will be stayed on the Lord. From his years of experience, a great man of God was convinced that 95% of all nervous breakdowns aren't caused by overwork, but by worries, fears, anxieties, and tension. But it's very difficult for worries and fears to dominate a born-again person who's living in close daily communion with the Lord. If we read our Bibles daily and spend time in prayer daily, depending on God for our, our every need, if we've encountered the Lord and if we understand the times and understand why the world seems to be crumbling because we're going through the birth pains that herald the return of King Messiah, I'm convinced that we'll remain steadfast, understanding the signs and watching for the Lord's sudden appearing. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, I can assure you, will bring resolution to the world's great conflicts. There's no need to be overly concerned about global warming and green issues because Jesus, when he returns, the earth will be renovated. Have you had a personal encounter with the Lord? If you have, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, 
all of these things, you'll receive his ability to love people that you could never have loved before. I'm telling you all this because the Bible indicates that if you have not received the Lord's great salvation, you're vulnerable. You're in a dangerous position. It's like you're dangling over an abyss. Are you in great peril like sleepwalking on a skyscraper? To deliver you from danger, God gave the world this glorious gospel, a great salvation through the merits of the Lord Jesus. But the rejection, or worse, the neglect of the gospel is highly dangerous. When Hebrews 2.3 asks the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The meaning of this verse is, how shall we who are all transgressors of God's law escape from the penalty that the law threatens if we neglect the one means of deliverance now offered to all of mankind through the gospel? The means of deliverance from sin's penalty is the atonement made available through the sacrificial blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, during Passover in this city for time and eternity. So don't kid yourself. We're all lawbreakers. Not one of us, except Jesus, the Messiah, has ever fully kept the Torah. God promises us in this Bible to save all and any of us from the penalty of sin if we'll believe the gospel. Now, the penalty of sin is hell and judgment. Romans 6, 23 declares the wages of sin is death. And it's the same message in the Hebrew scriptures. Ezekiel 18, 4 states, the soul that sins, it shall die. So sin has a penalty because the word sin means broken law. You and I have broken God's law. We've fallen short of God's moral requirements. But God says that if you come to his son who died on the cross, and if you receive him as your own personal savior, he will remove the penalty of sin. Romans 8.1 promises there is no penalty to them that are in Messiah Jesus. And that's the good news. God's salvation is free and it's for all nations through the merits of the Savior. But the critics say, oh, God is never going to come to judge us. This world is going to continue as it is. But the Apostle Peter wrote that these critics and scoffers are willingly ignorant of God's many past performances. They forget, for example, about the flood. God destroyed the whole earth in a flood, drowning every single individual except for eight souls. And he did it in judgment against sin. The scoffers forget about God's performance with the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. So if we neglect such a great salvation that Jesus offers us, how can we hope to be saved? Certainly not by our wealth. The world's currencies will be condemned at the judgment seat as utterly worthless. Can our good deeds save us? No. Because Ephesians 2.8 teaches, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. So don't think that you can count on your record to save you. All of our good deeds have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. 
then how shall we escape? The world with its many religions resents hearing this, but the Bible maintains that there is only one escape route, and that plan ultimately can be rejected or neglected. God grants us the freedom to reject such a great salvation through the gospel, even at our own peril. The skeptic and the atheist reject the gospel, but the nominal believer neglects the gospel. That's because the nominal believer puts off the priceless decision to receive and to follow the Savior. As one commentary argued, it's a greater insult to God to neglect such a great salvation than to reject it. We can pity the adamant person who says that the Bible is just a book of fables, but the person who neglects such a salvation that Messiah died for us is inexcusable. You see, it's one thing to reject God's great salvation, but neglect is practical atheism, and neglect is ingratitude to the Redeemer. This great salvation announced in the gospel is inconceivably great, and so described in Hebrews 2.3 as such a great salvation. Think of the exploits, the achievements of the eternal Son and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us from darkness to light. We have no hope of escape without Jesus because the Bible plainly states, neither is there salvation in any other than Jesus. But divine mercy has provided us a shelter in him. But if you neglect so great a salvation, God's thunderbolts can strike you to the ground. So consider the danger of delay. This week, I read about a woman who was faced with a very important lawsuit. She was strongly urged to secure the help of a very eminent lawyer, but she couldn't make up her mind. Time passed, and at last, when she decided to approach the great lawyer, he said with a grave face, Madam, you're too late. If you had come earlier, I would gladly have been your advocate, but now I've been called to the bench, and I must pass judgment on your case. That story reminded me of the day of grace. If we receive the Lord Jesus, he will be our advocate. He will plead the merits of his precious blood over the case of our accumulated sins. But the day will come when he will be the judge of sinners. And if we don't receive him now, he will pass judgment and sentence upon both the living and the dead. You see, Romans 3.12 says, There's none that does good, no, not one. The Bible teaches that every one of us is living in an earth suit, a physical body. In our body, as we spend so much time on it, cleansing it, grooming it, exercising, feeding it. But the real you and the real me on the inside are our spirits and souls, the part of us which the Bible says was created in God's image. Our spirit and soul were created for fellowship with God, but that fellowship with God was severed when sin entered the world. As a result, we human beings are filled with a moral disease called sin, which stirs up tension, strife, hatred, jealousy, anger, prejudice, intolerance, and war. Unless I repent, that disease called sin will cut off my connection, my fellowship with God. The Bible says without the one mediator, Jesus, you'll be cut off from God. 
You may look okay on the outside, but inwardly, the Bible says, every unregenerate person is dead in trespasses and sins. Today, the physicians, psychologists, and psychiatrists are dealing with the symptoms of the disease we call sin. But as St. Augustine said in the fourth century, man is restless until he finds God. And when we repent, when we return to God, then his life will flow through us. So I urge you to come back to God his prescribed way through Jesus, the Lord's anointed. Jesus himself extends to everybody his special invitation when he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Even though we feed the body with very little time cultivating and developing our soul, Jesus asked in Mark 8, 36, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Even if he gains the whole world. So the simple message is, don't neglect such a great salvation. Give your life to Jesus, the Lord's anointed. If you reject him, the Bible says there's no escape plan. Eventually, you'll face God's judgment. Suppose a person is dying of thirst in the desert and someone comes along and offers a bottle of water. Would the dying man just lie there parched and neglect it? No, he would guzzle down the water. And if a person is dying on a sickbed, would he scorn medicine that the doctor guarantees will cure him? If I'm in debt and someone fills my bank account with money, would I refuse to pay my bills? Well, we dare not neglect so great a salvation that's offered to everybody without prejudice from God. I want to emphasize that the Bible says there's no other escape plan. Jesus is the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible says no one comes to the Father except through him, Jesus. Well, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there was a governor named Felix, and Paul the Apostle preached his heart out to Felix. Paul told him how Jesus died for his sins and shed his blood on the cross, and Paul preached to him about the resurrection from the dead and that Jesus is alive. And he asked Governor Felix to repent of his sins and to receive the Messiah. And the Bible says the governor trembled. But something, sin, pride, position, stood in the way. And Felix answered dangerously, Go your way, Paul, for this time. I'll call you again when it's convenient. Think about this. Felix was near the kingdom, but he neglected so great a salvation. And my friend, there's never going to be a more convenient time than right now. Don't put it off like Felix did. We're told that Felix called for Paul many other times, but never again was he so close to the kingdom of God as he was when he first had the opportunity to receive the Lord's great salvation. If the Spirit of God is speaking to you now, this is the time, not tomorrow, to commit your life to the Lord. Don't just stand on the threshold of the kingdom. Come on in through the door, Jesus. If you put off this decision to another time, it can be too late. It can be neglect. We're also told in the book of Acts about Paul's encounter with King Agrippa. He also was on the threshold of the kingdom, but he hesitated. Paul asked in Acts chapter 26, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? 
Paul said, I know that thou believest. But King Agrippa answered, and these are some of the scariest words in the Bible. Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. Think about that. King Agrippa was almost persuaded. He almost stepped into the kingdom of God, but he missed out completely. Almost is a haunting word. He was almost in the kingdom for he said, almost you persuade me, but almost my friends is not good enough. You can even go to church all your life and claim you're a good moral person, but you haven't really committed your life to him. Perhaps you haven't burned destructive bridges behind you. Perhaps you never really counted the cost. You've been a number of times almost persuaded, but not quite. But again, the Bible asks, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that salvation includes the promise that the Lord will save us from the power of sin. The Bible says in Romans 6, 14, that sin shall not have dominion over you. This means when the Holy Spirit is in control of our lives, sin will no longer dominate us and make us into slaves. There shouldn't be an evil habit that controls a real believer. Oh yes, the devil will tempt you, but in the name of Jesus, my Lord and Savior, I am promised that sin shall not have dominion over me. I have a new dynamic, a new power to resist evil. The power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. By the grace of God, I've been granted supernatural power to resist temptation. So we can't save ourselves. A pope, a bishop, a rabbi, or a church can't save us. Only the Savior can save us and give this power. I'm hoping today that you'll be able, by the grace of God, to grasp your opportunity to receive the Savior's lifeline. Some years ago, a large river in America became greatly swollen and dangerous. A man tried to rescue some valuable timber that was floating in the river. But soon he was drawn into the rushing waters and he couldn't stop his boat. He was headed rapidly for destruction. A friend on land saw his peril and raced toward a bridge a few miles ahead as the only chance to rescue him. The friend dropped a rope from the bridge and called down for the man to seize the rope. And he grabbed the rope and was saved, avoiding an almost certain death. Even so, I urge you now, never rest until you've found rest and security in Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior. Amen. Well, you may ask, what do I have to do? And I would say this, are you willing to forsake the things that are wrong in your life? Are you willing to live for the Savior and put Him first? If your answer is yes, you can surrender to Him and receive now such a great salvation in the name of Jesus. And if I can encourage you more, let's do stay in touch on social media or at our website at exploits.tv where you can sign up to receive our free color magazine, Exploits. And don't forget our Jerusalem Channel app. It's available free to download from your app store. And so until next time, earnestly contending for the faith and praying always for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom and Maranatha.
The Apostle Paul gave us the inspiring imagery of running a good race in life, much as these 3,000 participants in the annual Jerusalem Marathon. Lots of things are happening these days in Israel's ancient capital, and we're here with the Jerusalem Channel to keep you informed of the fast-paced events and news through our daily website updates and regular video reports and biblical teachings. To continue this viewer-supported ministry, we need your help. Please become a part of the Jerusalem Channel by donating. Just click the Donate button on our website to give by credit or debit card. You can also donate by check to our U.S. address or our U.K. post office box. We're here to anticipate that one day soon we'll witness thousands running joyfully through the streets of the Holy City to welcome King Messiah.